This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. My name is Matt Douglas, and I'll be your host for this episode. And in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I'll be speaking with Michelle Hayward. Now, she's the founder and the CEO of Positive Hire, and we'll be talking about the current state of diversity in construction, the challenges faced by underrepresented groups in the industry, and also the retention strategies for keeping diverse talent in engineering construction. Let's jump right in. Before we go on here, a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Simpson Strong Tie. Simpson Strong Tie is a building industry pioneer dedicated to helping people design and build safer, stronger homes, structures, and communities. Simpson Strong Tie is making a positive difference for their customers through expert engineering, world-class test laboratories, and unrivaled technical support. We invite you to consider working alongside the many talented, passionate, and humble people who are all contributing to our shared mission in an environment that supports a healthy work-life balance. It's a place where you can connect, create, and build a career. Visit strongtie.com forward slash careers to learn about our culture and why Simpson Strong Tie employees are our most loyal customers. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, everyone. It's now time for our Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Michelle Hayward. So, Michelle, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, Matt. Happy to be here. All right, Michelle, can you share a little bit about your background and what inspired you to start Positive Hire with a focus on empowering underrepresented women in STEM? Became a civil engineer when I was 12 years old because a hurricane hit my home state of South Carolina. What I didn't know, which I found out very soon after joining industry, was I would be the only Black woman. I spent the bulk of my career on the job site building the power grid always in energy. And so what really sparked me building Positive Hire was around my experience in corporate America, as well as other Black, Latina, and Indigenous women that I met throughout my career. And so what we do at Positive Hire is focus on helping Black, Latina, and Indigenous women in STEM get management roles, really get through some barriers, and that in turn helps retain that talent, specifically in technical spaces like civil engineering. You actually have a background in, in civil engineering. Yeah, I have a, a bachelor of science degree in civil engineering from Clemson University, class of 2000. So if you know, you know. So I'm actually civil. I'm an EIT. I don't have a PE because I spent the bulk of my career actually on the construction side. I did, I've never done design work. I started out in project controls, uh, switched over to construction. I was a construction engineer, field engineer, and then went over to project management always, I spent my entire career on the construction site, minus one year when I I was actually in our St. Louis office. But other than that, I spent over a decade out in the field. Yeah, I had a fairly similar story to that as well. 
I'm still working on getting my PE, just a good step for us to have. It's excellent for our careers in general, but I've also been in the construction field for quite a while. One of the things about it is sometimes you don't actually need it to get where you need to go, or at least you see that it's not exactly required, but you see that there's a positive benefit to having it, usually later on in the career. So now I'm actually trying to get that underway. So I'm guessing that that's probably something that's in your sights as well, right? I'm a little bit older than you. Don't go by the hair. When I was still in corporate in this space, I looked at doing either the PNP or the PE. But just to frame what my lifestyle was like, doing any construction peak season, we're working six days a week, 10 to 14 hours a day. I did transmission distribution and we were building 375 miles of transmission lines and you can't drive it straight. You're in and off of private property. And so I was spending a, a lot of my time just traveling on the project, but I was away from home. So if it's 30 days in a month, I was only home five days out of the month. And so the ability to study, when you think you have an office job, it is very, very different <laughs> when you're like a transient lifestyle. Because when you come home, you don't want to work. You don't want to study when you're home for the five days. And then when you are off the job site, you're just trying to do laundry, cook and get ready to go back out. And so I was in and out of hotels, out of my apartment. It was a lot of change, a fluctuation in my day to day or week to week. And so it wasn't optimal for me to even find time to even study. So I was like, you know what? I don't need it because I'm always on the phone or emailing the design engineers. And, and that was, to me, the best part of what I learned was it wasn't necessarily getting the PE for me as it was better understanding how to manage people and how to communicate with people via phone, email, and in person. And so we can add in other things now, video and video conferencing now. But those were, to me, the communication skill set was more important to what I would work I was doing than it was to PE. You're saying five days out of the month, you're actually home. And I don't know about, you know, your personal life or anything like that. But if you have a family, that gets very treacherous, you know, trying to maintain that. So I can definitely see. And also have a similar story with that as well, having a family myself, not exactly on the traveling side of it, but just having other responsibilities. It's kind of hard to fit in that time to actually study for your PE. That's quite the journey. It is. I would say if the PE is something that you value and you want and you see it definitely a benefit for it, definitely go after it. I just was at the point where I didn't see the benefit of it. And of course, I'm a tail end Gen Xer. So I'm looking at older Gen Xers and boomers and they didn't have it for the company that I worked for. And they were 10 to 15 years further into their careers. And so I knew I could always go back to project controls if I wanted to go that route or go to project management and not. But I'd never done design work where I absolutely needed a PE. So that was the biggest difference for me. I, like, I didn't want to do design. I appreciate the work y'all do. I really do. But I was third generation construction. So it just made more sense. Need for whatever reason, it's like, yeah, P is not for me, but I, I enjoyed what I did. So let's go ahead and talk about what you do right now. And, you know, being a CEO of a tech startup. So you're in Amherst and you did note that you initially enjoyed coding in school. How did your journey from that point lead you to where you are today as a CEO for a tech startup? 
So being a civil, you don't always know what's going on in technology. Like you're utilizing technology. And I remember when I found out data was the new tech. Because <laughs> I was like, why is it data? Like, and so what I found, and I'm still discovering and looking at how much data we use on a construction site, was how do I change what the workplace experiences for Black, Latina, and Indigenous women? And what does that look like? And so being able to take my experiences, then talk to the women, but then also talk to employers, trying to figure out what each one sees as a problem that may overlap to create a solution. And so sometimes the solution is not always software, right? But to make a solution scalable, meaning usually you're bringing in some automation or some type of software. And so for me, looking at the civil side of what I did really on the program management is literally everybody's surprised at how detailed I can plan out what we're going to work on in the company, how to include software automation part of it, but also being able to talk to software developers. And I remember talking to uh, some developers like, y'all code is really clean. I can actually read it, right? And they're like, well, we thought you were civil. Like, I don't understand exactly what it's saying, but I don't, because language has changed. Like, I learned some very, like, Fortran 77. Trust me, you're not utilizing that probably right today. But you may, I learned SAS. And you probably don't see BASIC. BASIC was the very first language I learned back in the 1900s, as the young people say, or 1994, I would say. But that was the very first language I learned. And then from there, I went over to, uh, and in college, I did SAS and Fortran 77. And SAS being statistical language. And so for me, just understanding how to talk to developers is really important. And, and it's not necessarily reading the code as it is being able to convey to them how the experience you want your users to have. Because oftentimes we think about, oh, well, we want it to look like this. But I like, no, I want the users to be able to have this experience. So let's focus on these areas. And then how do you lay that out in a time frame, right? As a civil you have certain metrics and outcomes that you have to follow. And so on the construction management side, I had time and I had money. On the startup side, you have time and you don't have a lot of money. So I, but you have other types of currency. And so the ability to utilize the skill set that I had developed as a civil engineer really has come to help me as a founder and the CEO of a tech startup. The people that are in your program, what do they usually work on in this startup? Is it like an after school program thing? Or is it uh, something that might be like a little bit more involved? So for our specific software, it's called PH Balance. It's an internal talent place. So as more and more boomers leave the, the workplace, we're going to have a huge gap of talent that's not going to be available. But we also have issues with retaining certain people of color and gender women in the industry. And so with PH Balance, we're helping organizations, companies really identify skill set so they're better able to align skill set to projects that they need to stab. And it's a better way to retain talent for a couple reasons. Number one, women often aren't able to talk about all the trainings and all the accolades they have without a lot of backlash, but they will definitely enter it into a system. And so when it comes to what skills and trainings and experience people have, 
software can easily, more easily align that to the needs of a job. And so that's really how we're utilizing technology. So we're on the other side. So we're looking at the retention side of talent in this space because it's going to become more critical in the next three to five years. What's your current opinion on the current state of uh, diversity in the construction industry? It's still a lot of work to be done. Some organizations are doing much better than others. The larger the org, the harder it can be. And what I mean by that, some offices or teams and leaders are really good at developing, retaining their talent. But as you look around other offices, they don't have the same experience. They aren't as focused. So DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion is often looked at as an extra additional work as opposed to the imperative it really is. So when you think about highway construction, that matters to everybody. It matters most to Black communities if the highway goes into the middle of their their neighborhoods uh, when it comes to clean water. So we really have to look at how DEI plays a role in organizations, but as civils, engineers that are building infrastructure, it is a core part of what we do because we serve the public. And that hasn't really been tied together into why it matters. And I think that's a huge, another huge gap in why we aren't seeing organizations that's focused on it. But as civil engineers, we have to be because that's what we do, because we do the work for the public. You have to really understand the people that you serve. I agree with that wholeheartedly. But what are some of the challenges that underrepresented groups face in the engineering construction industry, in your opinion? There are several. I will start with educational gap is is a huge one, right? So access to the actual education that you need to even get to college is the first gap that has to be closed. And there are several programs there that have been in place for years that are, have made some traction, but it still hasn't been enough. Then as we look in college, because there's that gap in education, there are other policies or practices, as well as programs that are in place at some universities. So I went to Clemson. Clemson's had a peer program since the 1980s, which has helped retain many Black and Hispanic students at the university in engineering specifically. And they won awards for back since the, the 90s, when I was there in the 1900s. We're still 30 years in, and now you see University of Maryland, Baltimore County, they're doing the same type of work. But then when you look at what happens in the workplace, the small numbers that do make it out of college into the workplace drop off drastically. And so at Positive Hire, what we focus on is really the women are still there 10 plus years in. And how, because that's the final drop off point that most people don't talk about, which is you have this group of women, they may already be PEs and they leave. Right now, when we're having a shortage of engineers, 600,000, we can't afford to have these women leave. We have a lot of work to do for our infrastructure systems to get them back up. We're in the midst of climate change. We need to retain as much talent, good talent, educated talent in the space. And so what I'm seeing is organizations still not understanding their policies, practices, and procedures that hinder diversity and inclusion as well as belonging in the workplace. So that could be unfair practices with assigning people to projects, to promotions, opportunities for trainings, really huge, because if you're utilizing training to determine who gets a role, 
but you only give it to certain people, it now reduces your ability to promote fairly throughout and equitably throughout your organization. So that's how I'm seeing it from K through 12 to higher education into the workplace. How do you propose that we retain talent, especially with underrepresented groups in the um, with women? There are a few ways. So first, I would say on an individual level, there has been a last few years, a lot of focus on self-education. And that's great because you have to understand your own biases, understand your own blind spots. The next part would be organizations really looking at their practices, policies and procedures and understanding where everybody in the organization like, oh, no, that's not our policy. Our policy is this. But if you go talk to three different people in an organization, they either won't know the policy they or know that one exists. They'll be doing something different than what's in the policy. And so how do you rein everybody back in? And so that everybody's following the same steps. And so you're reducing the amount of bias in your policies, practices, and procedures. So there, um, ISO came out with one of the better methods to really assessing your practice policies and procedures in an organization as it pertains to diversity and inclusion. So it's called, is ISO 30415, and it came out in 2021, but it took ISO 10 years to develop it. So think about how long, how many people were involved in order to develop that and make it as succinct to an organization as possible. Also, the other issue is when we think about DEI, diversity and inclusion, we always think about it in terms of HR, but it impacts our products. It impacts our customers. And so we have to really look at it overall in an organization of how it plays out and how it shows up as opposed to hyper-focusing only on HR. Tying back into one of the points that you were saying earlier about reaching out to underrepresented groups, I really believe that it's up to us, people that are actually out there in the field, to like reach back and do as much as we possibly can to volunteer with schools, volunteer with uh, different programs such as like the National Society of Black Engineers or, you know, like ACE Mentoring, uh, for example. These organizations are actually having STEM programs that are out there right now um, and reaching back to kids, giving out scholarships and, you know, being positive mentors in our environments and just starting nonprofit organizations from the ground up. Just direct mentorship experiences, I think, are so important. And we kind of talked a little bit about some of the best practices that we can have in order to increase our inclusivity. But are there any other things that you think that like in the construction field specifically that construction management firms can actually do to increase their diversity, equity, inclusion in terms of what we're talking about here? One of the things that I always find most interesting about construction or when you're looking at fields where we're really focused on diversifying, especially around gender, very little is modified or studied about what women need differently. And so what I mean is, oh, well, just you can go over there. That's where the Carhartts are, where there aren't any women Carhartts, right? Women have a different body shape oftentimes, so they need a different shape Carhartt. And so it's really frustrating to when you have to go buy certain gear it's always, and it's like, oh, well, it's not enough women. Maybe it's not enough women because you don't make the gear. And it's like, and so that you're rolling up sleeves and you're pulling down stuff. And so it's, it's very 
uncomfortable. I'll say it that way. And so when you look at certain policies as well, policies that may be good for the office may not be the same thing in the field. And so oftentimes some of the or some of the more reoccurring issues on the field of sexual harassment. And so how do you deal with that on a construction site, especially when there is no HR located on a job? And what does that look like? And I think not enough has been done to really study the differences between an office setting to a construction setting in order to build out different rules and regulations that may need to be implemented depending on the type of project. So I like, oh, well, if it works in the office, we'll just put it in the field. Other than a women's restroom or portage on, that's the only difference you're, you're getting. More time really needs to be spent on what women need on the field that may be different than what men need. And we aren't seeing enough of that happening on the job site. For somebody that has spent the bulk of her career on the job site, or all, except minus one year, and literally I can name the number of women. It usually is myself and two other women on the job site. The most we got was our own portage on, at most. It was very much the same thing. And also changing language. It would get to the point wherein I would, they would say, and you guys, and I was like, and Michelle. And so then after a while, they would say, you guys, and Michelle. How do you go in and be comfortable helping them identify biases and changes they may have? in order? And I was telling this to a VP on a call, like, and Michelle. And so really try to drive home smaller changes throughout over time on the job site. So it's just more work and studying and understanding the differences of how women, the things women need on a job site and policies that really you can't take from an office setting and implement on a construction site. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned the sizings of the Carhartts, because now that I think about it, I mean, like I'm thinking, wow, there really is just a one size fits all when it comes to the Carhartt sizes. And I remember it because like, OK, do you need a small, medium or large? And it's like, OK, there's no extra small. There's usually never even a small, you know, and I'm in Texas. We're never going to have that out here. So I think that's uh, very important that you even mention that because more and more women are starting to break into the construction field, especially engineering. Yes, but construction, definitely. And even like the inclusive language, like you would just even mentioned, um, you know, guys and Michelle. Oftentimes, like we're just so indoctrinated to think that we just have a group of just one gender that's here and present in any of these meetings that we oftentimes just kind of ignore it. It's just so ingrained in our system to do that. And I think that we really struggle and don't do our best efforts to uproot those systems. But I'm glad that people like you are actually out here that is, that's heading the change for that. What's your outlook for the increased diversity in the construction industry over the years to come? Now, are there any trends or initiatives that you see in hopes for a more inclusive future? I've literally run across so many younger women coming through the trades. So carpentry, Lady Carpenter out of Pittsburgh and literally trademarked that brand and has her own business out of Pittsburgh. Women that are telling their stories and sharing it with other women saying, hey, this is a great opportunity for you for two reasons. They're like, the pay is really great. If you're coming through the union, guess what? You get paid while you're being trained, but the hours align with, with your kids' school. So you're getting them on the bus seven or quarter to seven in the morning. The job site, you can be at the job site at 730. You're off at three. 
at 3.30. So you're beating your kids getting off the bus at the same time or shortly thereafter. And so they really advocate for that. What I've also seen is McKissick and McKissick, the CEO, Daryl McKissick, starting a new organization that is focused on getting more Black people and retaining more Black talent in construction. And so having like Jacobs come in with that as well is really, really huge. I can't think of the name of the program right now. That's been really huge. Seeing other women um, have like construction chicks out in California, really teaching young girls about construction and, and really showing them the opportunities that are there, whether they want to be on the architecture side, the engineering side. And then we still have, of course, the traditional, I shouldn't say traditional, but the more historic, like National of Black Engineers that are still doing their pre-college initiative in Nesby Jr. and National of Black Engineers Jr. chapters throughout not just the U.S., but globally. And so I'm seeing more people talk about the opportunities in construction, younger people. I would love to see more TikToks. I'll say that much about construction. I'll study this here. But when I was still in corporate, I did a test, unbeknownst to my employer at the time, um, Snapchat. And I would share what was going on. It wouldn't be an active construction site. It was part of the construction. It wouldn't be a crew on site. And I'd be talking about what we were doing. And I would have a one college student. He was like, he would be asking me questions like, oh, well, how do you do this? And what do you do? And he, it really resonated. And I saw right then through that test that there was a gap in how we can share what we do on the job site to younger generations. that so they see it but they don't ever tune into it. Like they're on their phones, right? They have their headsets in where we didn't have that opportunity that much as a kid, but as a teenager, yeah. And so how do we get their attention now to what's in the industry? And so I'm loving the focus on the younger generations, getting them involved. But I think it's a missed opportunity by not being on social, sharing what we do more on a regular basis. It's boring. I think design side is boring. I don't know how y'all gonna make it exciting. To people like construction, that's where it's at. I'm just saying, I think it's a missed opportunity on TikTok and and um, even uh, YouTube shorts, things like that. I was definitely on the side of thinking that design side of engineering was more, it just wasn't really for me. I don't want to say that it was uh, boring, but at the time that it kind of was not of much interest to me. I was raised getting out there, digging in the dirt, walking in the woods and stuff, checking out the streams, building you know, actually utilizing my hands. So it was just different actually sitting behind a computer screen and actually like checking out designs. Now I think that design is a little bit more interesting. I will admit that. Um, I do take some enjoyment in actually checking out the design, but actually going and walking the property and seeing the equipment being used, and, you know, things of that nature, like it, it, that's very, very interesting to me now. What you are saying about social media like myself, like I actually get on Instagram and I follow just a bunch of different construction pages now because actually seeing that I think is so important because I think that that is the way that we kind of bridge the gap. That's the kind of a way that we bridge the gap between the the school and the actual field work that we're going to be doing when we actually get to the job. Like after we get the career started, there's just such a gap that's created. You're just I know that for me, when I got into the field, I was very, very lost and I did not know. Obviously, being in class, like you see things and you get the equations, you do the tests, you do the homework, but that's very, very different than the work that you actually get yourself involved with when you get into the actual field. 
but actually having someone that's out there and another person that looks like you being out there and showing you all of the different parts of it and how that ties into what you're actually learning in school, I think is so, so important. That's something that's very, very interesting to me, something that I would like to definitely take a part of. There are de dedicated pages that are out there for people, especially on TikTok, YouTube Shorts as well. People are out here doing it, but I think that more people need to do it, especially companies. Like if people that are in different universities know about the names of different companies that are, that are out here, like maybe you've had an internship or something like that, I think that maybe that could be something that is under the diversity, equity, and inclusion wing. That could be something that's helpful for onboarding. You're preparing your interns or your other possible hires for what they're actually going to be able to do. That way you can actually, it can lead to more retainage over time. There's just a little idea here. So if anybody takes it, just remember where it came from. Is there any advice that you would like to give to any young women out there who are interested in a career in engineering construction? Do it scared. If you can't, if you don't have anybody immediately in your vicinity to mentor you and you like somebody who looks like you, you a few opportunities you have, you could check your alumni directory at the university you're coming through. You can ask, you know, a professor or somebody else or that may know of other women that have graduated three, five, ten years ahead of you. Uh, you can also leverage LinkedIn for the same thing, whether they the same university, maybe same company or a competitor for who you're going to be working for to reach out to them. People love to mentor and talk about themselves and their experience. So you don't have to do a whole lot of selling, but you do have to have a purpose and an outcome that you want from that, that mentor. And then lastly, I will say, take some challenging assignments as early as possible. Don't necessarily volunteer for additional work. Additional work is not the same thing as a challenging assignment. I would say the challenging assignment was the very first one I was assigned to, which is a retrofit for a fossil fuel plant. And they were like, that sounds not that difficult. It was back three sides with a neighborhood and the fourth side was a river. They had already knocked down a, the planet, already been retrofitted in the 60s. We were coming in 2006 to retrofit again. When I said there were issues, there were issues. So I was happy to leave that project and go do transmission distribution. I left fossil fuel. I stayed in the energy, but I went to do transmission distribution. That particular project was challenging and had very, so take the challenging projects because it's going to grow and stretch you. And then other times you're like, this was easy. And but don't tell nobody it was easy. You just make it look hard, but it you was- make it look easy. <laughs> but take challenging assignments because it's going to give you skill set that you going to be able to leverage sooner than later. And also it's going to give you sometimes the vantage point of where you want to go as the next phase of your career. And that's the next three to five years, not necessarily 15. So I say take the challenging assignments sooner than later. 100% agree with that. You know, how else are you going to learn other than throwing yourself through the fire and getting burned a little bit? The burns will heal over time. It's healthy, I think to be able to put yourself through a challenge. It's like exercise, you know, you got to lift a little bit of heavy weight. Yeah, I don't know about getting burned, but you build a flame, it's going to keep you moving, it's going to keep you motivated, but I don't know about getting Yeah, it may be to keep you from getting burned. Like you feel a little bit of heat, that's okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to be discussing our CE Hot Seat segment with Michelle. Stay tuned. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. 
All right, everyone, welcome back. It's now time for the CE Hot Seat segment of the week with Michelle Hayward. All right, uh, Michelle, are you ready to go? Let's do it. Do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? Now, for example, do you have a specific morning ritual or lunchtime ritual, things that you do consistently on a daily basis that contribute to you being a successful professional? For me, take a nap, but also I would say take a walk. If you can get outside, depending on the time of year, I find that it really clears my head and helps me focus. But between a nap and a walk, those are my two things that I believe in faithfully. What is one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you have found to be extremely helpful in your professional development? I'm going to go old school. Actually, I have two books. So the first one would be One Minute Manager. I found that communication is highly important, especially in construction site, because people's lives are, are in your hands. And so One Minute Manager gave me the ability to understand how to communicate the way people, individuals need to be communicated to, not the way that I prefer to communicate with others. And so that really changed a lot in how I approach operators, other engineers, property owners. Trust me, you're in somebody's cornfield and you're putting in a foundation, they got questions for you. And so it's really important to be able to communicate. The other one is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Looking at leadership and what this leadership looked like from being a good leader, from going from a manager to a leader, to being a great leader. And what does it really take? I think oftentimes we think because we're engineers, obviously I'm a great leader. I, I don't know about that. Or I'm a great manager. I, just because you know how to do the job doesn't mean you're really good at leading people. And I would say the book Good to Great really hones in on the differences between the two. So one minute manager, how to communicate effectively with people. Hopefully you're going that you're leading or you want to lead. And those two really tie together in how I think sometimes as analytical people, really great engineers, we may not be the best at leading people like communicating with them. Yeah, I mean, I would agree one hundred percent there's definitely a need for uh, people leadership skills. And obviously that's something that we at the Engineering Management Institute, we professionally do. We provide people leadership skills training for engineers and also for engineering firms and companies because we realize that there's such a lack of people leadership skills, project management skills. And communication obviously is one of the most prominent skills yeah. that you have to have in order for you to be in leadership. I mean, if you're not able to communicate effectively, how can you actually be able to lead? I mean, let alone bring in work. It's just not going to be possible, right? And even so as civil, we think we're going to design in college. But what often happens, we're communicating with our team, communicating with the owner, or you're the owner's agent. So if you're communicating with all the contractors and the owner, it is if to have really great communication skills matter. I've seen engineers that are really good have horrible communication skills, and it impacts, negatively impacts projects and the ability for the company to get more work from that client. So if you don't think communication skills matter, they matter a lot, especially if you're going to be looking to get more work from a client. Thinking back on your managers in the past, picture your favorite manager or your managers. What made them your favorite? This is so easy. So this would be Bob. So you can't get it wrong, B-O-B -B or backwards B-O-B. -B. So what I liked about Bob, Bob 
was the leader. Like he wasn't a manager. And what I liked about Bob was he would literally give the team all the praise for the project and he would take all the blame. And this is what I mean. You know, again, I worked on capital projects. We were building 400 miles of transmission lines. So we had people in our New Jersey office, in our Denver office. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the time for part of this project. In the client's office, we had people across 400 miles of transmission line in Texas. And then our VP at the time, he was in a client's Austin office. And if we would have our morning conference call and he would do stuff like this, I screwed up. The client isn't happy with information that I shared with them. I'm going to need some of you to really help me bring together some information that the client needs to make some future decisions. So I'll be emailing each of you to schedule out or some of you to schedule time so I can fix this problem that I've created with the client. And you're like, who, wow. who is this? Who, what VP taking the blame? Like, where am I? And, but then a few weeks later, he'll be on a call. Like the client is really happy with the work each of you are doing. They're really surprised about how we've come through and delivered on this project. And I want to say thank you to everybody showing up and really helping the client reach their goals. They're really happy with the work you're doing. So when he's saying this, he's actually genuine about it. But what made Bob one of my favorite people was he looked to see how to help you. And what he would say is he gave you room to fail and he would tell stories. He related everything often through stories and he would go about and say, hey, I used to work with an engineer and he screwed up stuff to the point I was waiting for him to come ask for help and he never asked for help. And so I had to step in and take over. So what I wanted each of you to understand you're going to fail. You're going to have problems. The important part is to ask for help. There's nothing wrong with asking for help because we all need it from time to time. As you can see, I've screwed up on this job and I've had to ask some of you for help. So feel free to do the same. So he gave us room to fail, but also told us he was there to help us. And so it's really important to have leaders in the workplace on how they are able to communicate with their team across states, across the project, and really get them to believe in themselves, but also believe that you have their bag. And so that was one of the most favorite people that I worked for. He was a leader. Like, okay, Bob's going to the next project. Like, are you going to the next project? Bob, Bob said, I'm coming to the next project. Everybody was excited to go work for Bob. And he had a great brand within the organization for being a leader, but he also would never undermine other people. He was like, yeah, that's the way such and such works. But at the end of the day, to get certain things done. So think about an X, Y, Z way. So talking about a micromanager. And so he really believed in coaching people, mentoring his team, and really finding the best way to deliver products or service to our clients. So I, I love working for Bob. I uh, wish I could have worked for him all my career, but you don't always get that. But I definitely worked with him from like 2010 to about 2015. So I worked with him for five years on capital projects. So now if you got into an elevator with a civil engineering student, what advice would you give them in 30 to 40 seconds? What would your elevator pitch be? My elevator pitch would be for them, if they're going to the design side, spend six months to the year in the field. It will forever change how you approach having conversations about solving problems that the field is seeing from your design. If you're going to be in the field, that's where you want to start. I encourage you to spend six to 12 months in the office doing design work or project controls or something else so that you understand that environment 
and how they work within the office as well and what problems they may have and how you can now respect them, even though they are in the field with you in the rain and in the mud and the snow, but still respect the work that they do. Because sometimes there is definitely a wedge between when you get to go home every night or you work in a coffee office to my trailer and really experiencing both of those environments really can help you have more respect and ability to communicate more clearly no matter where you, your career goes because you've spent at least some time in, in each one of those settings. I could not agree more with that. I remember when I was working straight out of school for a small design firm working on water resources and they oftentimes used to say like, oh, the city of such and such is is not doing anything. They're not doing any work. And I'm just thinking, uh, maybe they aren't actually doing any work. But then I took a trip into a career transition and I went to public works. And then I saw what they were actually not seeing on that side, how much work actually goes on from the municipal side. When I mean municipal side, I mean like the construction side as well. Like there is just such a disconnect between the designer, the contractor, the governing authority. There's just such a disconnect between all of these different entities where we are thinking that the other party is not doing their part of the job or that they're not busy with something that they're just pencil pushing, you know, for lack of better words. And I think that that is so far from the truth because there's so much work that needs to be done on those other sides that we just don't get to see. And like you're saying in another aspect, being able to see what actually happens in the construction field and how your project is able to be constructed will completely change the way that you see design as a whole. Like you probably won't suggest to do X, Y, and Z on your design if you knew what it actually takes to make that design happen in terms of construction and how much money and time actually goes into that. You yeah. get so disconnected when you don't see that, you know, you haven't even had that experience. So I think that it's really important to note that. I love that because I'm over here laughing at the engineers just being on calls, um, pre-bid meetings or kickoff meetings. And the engineers go, well, we weren't sure how you're going to do it. Well, we put the foundation here. We're doing, we did pure foundation for transmission distribution. I'll be, I'd be like, y'all didn't think that, you know, the drop off from that, how they going to get bulldozers down there. Like, yeah, we figured y'all had to build a road or something. We're like, y'all want to get on a plane, get in a rental car and come out here now and, and redesign this. Like, we'll take y'all advice. It's nonsensical some of the stuff design engineers do because they're looking at a topo and not really having experience, heavy equipment having to come in and, and build some of this stuff. So yeah, I absolutely agree. There's some gaps in there that we get to experience by trading places sometimes in our career. Michelle, we really thank you for getting on to this uh, podcast today and sharing so much information for us. Could you tell us where we could find you and where we could find your business as well? You can find us at Positive Hire, that's H-I-R-E dot C-O, so we're dot co. So PositiveHire.co, you can also find me over on LinkedIn if you like LinkedIn. I'm the Michelle with one L and it's K-word H-E-Y-W-A-R-D. So love to connect with you. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, we will definitely be paying attention to your company and everything that you do. And I uh, just hope that you have a great day. Please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. 
And there you'll find a summary of the key points that we discussed in today's episode, as well as any of the links, any of the resources, websites, or books that we mentioned in today's episode as well. Until next time, I wish you all the very, very best in your civil engineering endeavors. Take care. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.